to Colossians chapter 1. And let's pray. Father, again, we are so grateful. We have so much to be grateful for, especially as we come into, into this season where we celebrate the birth of Christ. How you humbled yourself, Lord Jesus, and took on human flesh, lived as we do, yet without sin, so that you would be able to be the perfect sacrifice. You bore the wrath of God due to each one of us. And you died, you were buried, you rose again, and you're now at the right hand of the Father, awaiting the day when he's going to put all your enemies as footstools for your feet. And how we anticipate that day, how we long for that day. And so, Father, help us this morning, as we, especially as we consider Paul and his perspective on his sufferings, that we would see you and that we would be encouraged and that we would be spurred on to love and good works. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we were looking at this section where God, through the Holy Spirit, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, authors this incredible passage about the Lord Jesus and his utter preeminence in everything. And again, keep in mind as to why Paul is writing this letter. He's writing, part of the reason is he is writing to combat these false teachers who are coming in and saying, Jesus is great, Jesus just isn't enough. You need something else. You need the works of the law, or you need some special knowledge. You need, you know, you know, the deeper things of Christ that only we can actually declare to you. And so it's, you know, as we, we talked last week, it's Jesus is no longer preeminent. He's just prominent. He's one among several, even perhaps one among many. And that is not the case. Christ is above all. We're going to see in chapter 11 that, you know, he is, um, he is all and he's in all. And so, again, this, uh, that Christ is, he's to have the first place in everything. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity to dwell in him. And at the end of that passage, at the end of that section, Paul transitions into, um, he's going to have to not defend his apostleship as he does perhaps in some other places, but because the Colossians have never met him, they don't know him as other churches do, he is going to give them a glimpse into his life. Now again, where is Paul when he is writing this book. He's in prison. Now, when you think about somebody being in prison, what is the first thought about them that comes to your mind? Yeah, why are they there? Because they're a criminal. 
do you consider anybody who is in that type of custody, do you look at them and the first thought that goes through your mind is, well, gee whiz, that guy, you know, he must be innocent. I'll confess that's certainly not the first thought that goes through my mind. You know, and mine is, is that usually um, you got to do something really bad to end up in prison. Otherwise, you're just in jail, right? And so there's this idea, and I can only believe that Paul's adversaries are taking that tune and playing that one loud and clear. Why should you be listening to this guy? He's a criminal. Why should you be paying attention to him? And so Paul is going to start, this section actually starts in verse 23. Actually, we'll go back to, yeah, we'll go to 23. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now this word minister, we would recognize if you used a different term for it. This word minister is the same word that we get deacon. So how is deacon usually translated? Servant. That's the whole idea. That's, you know, when, when you're a deacon, you're a servant. And we've certainly got good examples of that here, don't we? And so Paul is a servant. And, and notice again, he was made a servant. Not Paul's choice. Whose choice was that? Yeah, that's Christ's choice. Christ is the one who distributes the gifts as they are given, and they're distributed to each and every believer, and they're distributed for God's service in service to the local body. And so Paul was made a minister. He was made a servant. Now, If you're locked away, especially if there is not a great amount of hope for your delivery, what do you think your attitude might be as you're in prison? Hopeless? What's Paul's? That's not even the word he uses. Let's start reading in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God 
That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make it known what is the riches of the glory of this ministry among the gent of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Why does Paul consider that he is in prison? He's in prison for the gospel, but more specifically for, the, for this church, he's in prison for them. This is something, this is being done on their behalf. And he's not resentful. He takes that and turns it to where I can rejoice in my sufferings for you. Why, Paul? Why is that? Because I am doing my part in filling up the afflictions of Christ. This idea here, um, now, this idea of filling up the afflictions of Christ, this gets turned around on its head. So for instance, the Roman Catholics take this and they, they get the idea that this is where purgatory comes in. Christ's sufferings weren't enough. And so somehow there's something else that has to be added in to that. Just as our sufferings in this life won't be enough, there's going to have to be additional that has to take place some other place. So as we look at this, let's pull through. I rejoice in my sufferings for you and in my flesh... I do my share on behalf of his body. So again, this is not just you, Colossae. This is the church at large as well. So this is the local church and it's the universal church. 
So Paul, as he looks at this, I am doing actually two things here. Number one, the idea of filling up the afflictions of Christ is that the world can't get at Jesus anymore. Jesus' afflictions, Jesus' sufferings on the cross were sufficient. And this, when it, when this word here for affliction, this is never used. This word is one of Dave's favorite words, flipsis. The idea of flipsis is pressure. It's often tra uh, translated tribulation. And so you see it uh, in, in Romans 8 when it talks about, you know, what shall separate us from the love of Christ, right? Shall, shall persecution, shall distress. That word distress, that's flipsis. So it's the idea of being squeezed. It was used to talk about squeezing the olive or the grape to get what's inside. You don't care what happens to the rest of it. You're squeezing so that you maximize the extraction of what you want that's on the inside. That word is never used of Christ's atoning work on the cross. Never. And so the idea here is that as the world wants to punish Christ, they can't get to him, and so who's available? Us. We are. And so the idea, and again, this idea of suffering for Christ, this is throughout the New Testament, right? We shall reign with him if indeed we what? Suffer with him. There's no concept in the New Testament that somehow at the end heaven awaits and there's no price to pay on the way there. That is foreign to the New Testament. That is American theology. That's the idea that somehow we're supposed to be able to be at peace. That's, that's where the health and wealth gospel comes from, right? If you're suffering, you must be doing something wrong. So in other words, if you're suffering and you're suffering persecution, then you must be a criminal. It must be something about you because that's not what Jesus would want for you. Paul would differ with that greatly. Okay, so the, the comment is, is that that often happened in the Old Testament and that would be true, that it often happened in the Old Testament specific to Israel, right? Because Israel, look, obey me and be blessed, disobey me and be cursed. And there is that. Yet, even in the Old Testament, this is somewhat of a foreign concept. Look at Job. In fact, <laughs> what was the attitude of Job's friends, his comforters? What was their belief? Boy, not just Job, you must have. Man, what did you do? What did you do to warrant this? Uh, John chapter 9, the man born blind, right? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And yet, it's neither. He's been born blind so that the glory of God might be being manifest in him. God had a purpose for what was going on with him. God had a purpose for what was going on with Paul. That's why when Paul often refers to himself as a prisoner, he's a prisoner of who? He's a prisoner of Christ. He's a prisoner of the Lord. 
He's not a prisoner of Rome. He's not there because of the Romans. In fact, he wasn't there because of the Romans to begin with. Why was he there? The Jews. They're the ones who were accusing him. They're the ones that wanted to kill him. You remember that after he had appealed to Rome, and he's before, I forget if it's Festus or Felix, um, I think it was Festus. If, you know, after they've heard his case and they hear what this is about, this man might have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. So now he's in the Caesar pipeline. And, that's, and so he's in Rome, he's in prison, and yet he is rejoicing. When you read the book of Philippians, what comes across as far as Paul's attitude regarding his circumstances? Joy. Rejoicing in where he is. Rejoicing in why he's there. And understanding that why he's there is not, perhaps not even primarily, it's not about him. It's about others. So now when you have something that you are enduring specifically on the behalf of others and you're doing it with the attitude of gratitude and thanksgiving that I'm able to do this, what would that be the definition of? The very definition of? That's love. Enduring hardship on behalf of another. That's the very presentation of it. And so... Paul, on the one hand, he's filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. And that's not all. He goes on, of this church I was made a minister. So again, this is, this is a, a function. This is an assignment that Paul is being given by God. So this is my ministry. This is what I'm called to, as difficult as it may be. This is what I'm called to. I was made a ministry according to the stewardship from God. This word, this word stewardship is the idea of being the manager of the house. So oftentimes, especially in a large house, you had somebody whose job was just making sure everything got done. Everything was managed properly. And it's a stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. Now here's reason number two. So that... I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Now, this idea here, fully carry out, is um, it's making full, it's completing, it's um, Taking something and not having it in part, but, but having the fullness. And it's really, you'll notice that preaching is in italics. Because the word preaching isn't in Greek. It isn't there in the Greek. The idea here is that Paul is still in the process of, God is still in the process of revealing truth, right? The Bible is still being written. The New Testament is still being written. And it's being written through Paul and other apostles. And so the idea here is that it's, this is being filled out so that God's revelation is being filled out. And, and again, for whose benefit? 
for theirs. By extension, for whose benefit? For ours, right? And so here you have, so look at what Paul is doing. Because we need to employ this same idea and the same mentality. Paul is not a victim, right? You don't see a picture of Paul anywhere when he is in prison of, you know, what was that song? Poor, poor, pitiful me. Paul never does that. Even when he's got plenty of opportunity. He wrote to the Galatians, from henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the brands of Jesus. What's he referring to? You can play tic-tac-toe on Paul's back. He's got plenty of scars. He's got plenty of evidence that he has suffered for the name, physically. And again, when you, when you, when you look in 2 Corinthians 11, and he's going through that whole laundry list of the physical things that he suffered, what's the one that is the capstone of his endurance for Christ? Remember, he goes through this whole list. You know, he's been beaten. He's been, you know, he's been shipwrecked. He's been stoned. He's been left for dead. He's been uh, in danger in the country, in the city, from all kinds of different people. And at the end of that, he goes, and besides all of this, what's the other item? That's right. There's the concern, the daily concern for the churches. Paul has never even met these people. And yet, he is laboring on their behalf. And so his whole life is wrapped up in this idea that he is the minister of Christ for the church at large and for the churches in which he actually comes into personal contact. And so he takes this, and instead of being a victim, oh no, to the Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? And that the idea of maintaining the attitude and the perspective that, in fact, I am about accomplishing God's work. Now, what might be something when you realize that what is happening to you is, in fact, furthering the kingdom and, in fact, being a blessing, being a benefit to others, what do you think might come out of that? Joy. Something that would be related to joy. Think about what we just celebrated. Gratitude. Gratitude. When Paul looks at his condition, when he looks that how, again, going back to the Philippians, I'm imprisoned, but the gospel isn't. The gospel's being preached. People are coming to Christ. The church is being edified. The church is being built. And even here, while I am confined physically, I've got people who I can send so that I can be in other places through them. Who started the church in Colossae? Most likely. 
Epaphras. Epaphras knew Paul, probably from Ephesus. And so here, Paul's never been to Colossae, yet he can send Epaphras as his emissary, as his representative, as an apostle. That's what an apostle is, a send out one to go over and start the work there in Colossae. And so again, Paul's perspective on this is crucial. Our perspective on where we are needs to be the same. Now, if we're about God's business, then we can have that perspective, right? If I'm on cruise control and Christ is kind of being delegated off into a corner, then what do I need to do? Come on, it's not that early. That's right. Repent. Repent. And get on with it. And so, because again, we have work to do. So, Paul, that you might fill out the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations. Now, this is interesting. What was it that the false teachers were trying to peddle? They've got snake oil, and they're trying to pass it off as something. What is it? Pardon me? Okay, but what, what's the idea here? You need us because we have something special, right? We have the deeper understanding. You've got to come over to us and so that you would be able to actually see, you know, what's, you know, what's hidden behind the curtain. It's the idea of, you know, we're, we, are, we have our special initiates, and it's only them that are able to actually have this real understanding of, of Christ, of, of, of religion, of truth. Because remember again, for them, matter is bad. Spirit is good. Matter's bad. That's why Jesus isn't God, because God can't have anything to do with physical creation, with physical matter. So Jesus is some lesser guy, two, three, four rungs down from God the Father. And he, okay, yeah, he can handle creation, but that's because there's enough difference, there's enough separation between Jesus and the Father. That's the kind of stuff that they're peddling here. Paul takes their terminology and flips it. This idea of a mystery, and we've talked about this before, what is a mystery Biblically, New Testament, what's a mystery? Something previously hidden that is now being revealed. So when he looks here and he says, the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations. And so this is something that is new. People before wouldn't understand this because God had not revealed it yet. And what is it that, that God is revealing here? He's made it manifest. He's made it known to his saints because God wanted 
to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. So again, stop for a moment. This is something that doesn't flow off of our tongues. Because for us, it's always been about the Gentiles, right? None of us goes back far enough to be able to experience the difference between Jews as God's chosen people and Gentiles, the dogs, those that were without. Later in this book, we're going to find out that we were excluded from the commonwealth. We had no hope. That has been shattered in Christ. Yeah, no kidding. Thank you. This idea here, Gentiles, even in the Old Testament, in fact, in the Old Testament, if you wanted to be a, a follower of God, what did you basically have to do? You became a Jew. You became a Jewish proselyte. And even then, you were second rate, right? Because you weren't ethnically a Jew. You were a tag-along. Second-rate citizen, second class. There's none of that in Christ. And so if you go Romans 12, 10, 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Galatians 3, 28, Colossians 3, 11, what do you find? In Christ, there's no Jew, there's no Gentile. There's no slave, there's no free. There's no male, there's no female. All of those distinctions that existed in their society, none of those exist in the church. None of those exist in the family of God. None. There is no special, there's no preferred class in the kingdom. And that's new information. In fact, um, when salvation went, when salvation was extended to the Gentiles, I, I just gave that away. When the message went to the Gentiles and all of a sudden they're turning to Christ and the same things that happened on the day of Pentecost are now happening with the Gentiles. What was the response of the Jews, of the believing Jews in Jerusalem? Well then, God has extended salvation to the Gentiles. And you remember all of the uh, the back and forth, well now, what do we do? It was complicated enough for Jewish believers. You know, are we still under the law? Are we under grace? You know, how do we do this? And now throw Gentiles in there to where cats and dogs is kind when you talk about really the relations between Jews and Gentiles, Right? What made the, good the story of the Good Samaritan so compelling? The rabbi walked on the other side to avoid the one who had been 
assaulted. Another one, another Jew on the other side. Who stopped to help him? A Samaritan. The half-breeds. The cursed ones. The ones with whom they would have nothing to do, right? And so again, this idea here, the mystery that's being revealed here is Gentiles, Christ in you. The hope of glory. You're blessed now. You're to be blessed in the kingdom. And you're not second rate. You're not some type of, you know, second, third, fourth tier Christian. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so, we proclaim him. That's the message. This has been revealed by God. You don't have to belong to some secret society. This has been revealed to any of the saints. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we proclaim him. And how do we do it? How is it that Paul is looking to proclaim Christ? He does it in two ways. He does it first by admonishing. And again, who is Paul's audience? Verse 28, we proclaim him admonishing who? Every man. Again, is Paul the, the, the apostle to the Gentiles? Yes, he is. But when Paul went into town, where's the first place he went? He goes to the synagogue. And basically, he stays there proclaiming the message until they throw him out. And so, he's preaching the gospel. He's proclaiming the truth of Christ to anybody who will stand there long enough to listen to him. So admonishing, what, what, is, what is it to admonish? Say it louder. To put in the mind. Now admonish, is that normally viewed as a positive or a negative thing? It's often viewed as negative, okay? Because admonishment also often includes what? Correction, okay? So that's where, again, and again, we ought not consider it that way, right? If I am nudging off the path and someone comes to me and says, do you realize that you're doing this? Why are they bringing it to my attention? It's a course correction. You know, as my mother used to say, straighten up and fly right. And so I'm, it's, it's bringing back. That's the idea of correction, is bringing back to what is proper. So, the proclamation includes not just admonition, what's next? We're also teaching every man with all wisdom. What's the idea of teaching? The word is didasco, from which we would get what? Didactic. What's didactic teaching? All right, come on now. I am getting deaf, so you're going to have to speak up. 
Pardon me? Systematic? What else do you think of when you think of didactic? Doctrine? Say hello. Lecture? Okay. But the idea here is, is he, what he's doing is, this is the training part. This is instruction. And it's with all wisdom. So the idea of wisdom is what? You have knowledge, which is, attach another word to knowledge. Truth. You could put doctrine there with, with knowledge. What's wisdom? Yeah, how do I take this truth and put it into practice? How do I obey it? How do I practice it? How do I take those principles and apply them to the everyday situations of life? And so we're doing correction. We're doing instruction. Why? So that we may present every man complete in Christ. Now this word complete is often translated perfect or mature. The idea here is that you have somebody who is well-rounded, they are knowledgeable, they are wise, they have understanding so that they know the principles of God, they understand the principles of scripture, and they're able to put them into practice, and that is evidenced first and foremost by obedience. Remember that in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, when you talk about belief, what's the word that can also be substituted for believe? He who has the Son has the life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So the idea here, belief, faith, is demonstrated by obedience. Verse 29, for this purpose also I labor. This word labor is to work to the point of exhaustion. So again, this, is, this isn't... Uh, token. This is putting everything into the ministry. In fact, striving according to his power, that word striving is, uh, in Greek is agonizomai, from which we would get what? Agonize. So again, this is, Paul is all in. I am striving with everything I have, and I can do so because I'm being empowered by God. I am being powered by God's grace. And so I work. Two verse one. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. This word struggle Again, is the word agon, from which we would get agony. I am laboring on your behalf. You've never met me. But I labor, again, in this way. So, Paul, how are you doing that? 
How, how is it that that extends to the Colossians? What, it, what is it, what benefit, again, because it's for their benefit, it's on their behalf. So what is it that Paul's doing that is, in fact, to their benefit? What's he doing? Vitaly. Benefiting from his prayer. Again, remember back in chapter 1, would you like to be prayed for like the Colossian church was prayed for back in chapter 1? So he's, he's laboring for them in prayer. Right. And so, and there's the ministry of the word. He is imparting truth to them so that they would be able to take that and understand it so that they can do it and put it into daily practice. And so again, this isn't something, there's nothing in Christianity, frankly, there's nothing in doctrine that is meant to be simply something that occupies space in between your two ears. Every doctrine, every doctrine impacts daily living. How do you live? Because that, under, that doctrine is your understanding as to what is true. That understanding of what is true it influence you, influences you as to how you interpret what's going on around you. That all comes out of doctrine. So for instance, if you were a political figure, somebody who was in political power, and it was your belief, your doctrinal belief, that the church has replaced Israel, therefore Israel is no longer the benefactor of the promises made by God in the Old Testament, and you're trying to deal with how Israel gets along with the Palestinians. Do you think that your doctrinal belief might impact what a national policy might be regarding two different people groups? Yeah, it's huge. And that's happened in history. That's happened in our history. Doctrine influenced action because that's what doctrine does. So when you're, when you're, when you're studying the different things of the different doctrines of God, when you're studying the different doctrines presented in the Bible, that's not just to take your head and you know, puff it up about 18 head, you know, hat sizes. It's the idea that you then understand what is happening around you so that then you can take the principles of God's word and put them into practice with dealing with different circumstances and different situations. It informs your worldview, absolutely. Because again, <laughs> all right, a quick rabbit trail. In our culture, there's supposed to be a difference between what you believe personally and what you implement publicly, right? You're not supposed to have, your beliefs are not, your, your religious beliefs, your spiritual beliefs are not supposed to impact public policy. Really. It, it, it utterly amazes me that 
people, and again, I realize that they're blind. I realize that they're deceived. They have to be in order to come up with something like this. If you're a Christian, you have to park your Christian beliefs and the things that influence and determine how you respond in life if you're going to deal with this particular issue. But somebody who's a non-believer, they have no such constraint. It is... makes no sense. So Paul is struggling. He's laboring mightily on their behalf. And all those who haven't seen him, why? That their hearts may be encouraged. Now this word encouraged is the same word that is used to describe the Holy Spirit. What was the, who, who was going to come? The comforter. That's this word. So to encourage is the same, to console, to comfort, to encourage. It's, it's the same, it's, it's, it's all of that out of there. It's coming alongside and helping to spur along and helping to carry along. That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love. And so they're unified, they're united, they're not fragmented. There's no schisms. You don't have, and again, that's why, again, because of Christ, there's no Jew or Gentile. There's no slave or free. So all of the divisions that exist in society don't exist in the church. Because then, that's again, that's how you can be truly knit together. You can be truly united. There's nothing that separates you. There's nothing that divides you. And attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. Stop for a second. Now again, we need to remember, when is this being written? When's when's this book being written? Anybody remember? Date-wise. Yeah, early to mid-60s is when Colossians is being written. Now, okay, well, what's the big deal about that? What happened in 60 A.D. in this region? Big earthquake. Wiped out most of Laodicea and damaged Colossae. Now remember again, Colossae had been the regional hub. So they were the banking center for the region. They were the economic center for the region. But they're on the fade. They're on the downhill slope. And Laodicea is ramping up. That's why, again, in Revelation, when you have the letters to the churches, you have this idea that the Laodiceans were thinking, because we're rich financially, then that translates into, I'm rich spiritually, when in fact, you're blind, you're you're destitute, you're naked. You you have great need. So, again, this this idea here, again, they are... Wealth and riches and treasures are a thing in this region. What is Paul attributing as to what are the true riches? What are the true treasures? What are the things that you really need to be going after? Who cares that you've got sheep and you can dye them in these certain colors that are from our region and so that's what drives part of our economy? What are the real riches? What's the real wealth? here. It's not wrapped up in that. Again, it's back 
to Christ. You want wealth? How about the riches of the knowledge of him? How about the treasures of wisdom and understanding? There's a lot of people who are rich, who emotionally and spiritually are destitute. They don't have anything. It's like having a full buffet spread out here and you're starving to death because I'm enraptured with something over here that isn't going to feed what it is that I need to feed, what I need to have fed. So you're attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. This, this idea of full assurance, this is certi- perfect certitude. This is, this is true. Um, it is said that uh, John Payton, who was, a minister, who was a missionary in the South Pacific, was translating the Bible into a language and he was trying to figure out, how do I define faith? to these people. And ultimately what he came up with is faith is being able to put your full weight on. I put my full weight on this because I trust it's going to hold me up. Right? We've talked about this before. None of you checked the chair that you're sitting in before you sat down this morning. I have yet to see anyone come in here with some type of a scale and some weights to to put and make sure that the chair is actually going to physically support you before you sit in it. We don't do that. You're putting your full weight on it. Why? Because you trust the chair. The same thing here is true. You have full assurance of faith. Full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, why do we need to know that? So you don't get suckered. Because there are people who are trying to deceive you. They are trying to delude you, as the word's used here. They're trying to get you knocked off of the straight and narrow and down some other path. And they're going to use persuasive argument. Oh, they're, and, and again, how do you do that in a religious setting? How would you implement persuasive argument? What's the first tool, ba- tool in the tool bag of the false teacher? Okay, it can be doubt. One of the things that they do, they take our vocabulary, so words that we're used to hearing, except they change what the word means. And if you don't pay attention to how they're using the term, you can get suckered. Because you think they're saying one thing when in fact, they mean something entirely different. And it is intentionally deceptive. It's intentionally deceptive. And so, listen, 
That's why we need knowledge. That's why we need to know what the truth is. And we need understanding. What does that truth mean? And then we need to have wisdom. I understand it. I know what the truth is. I understand what it means. Now, how do I apply it to the different situations in life that I encounter? We need all of that so that we don't get suckered, so that we don't get drawn away. There's all kinds of people today on television. And if you watch them, they're very skilled at speaking. Boy, they've got great examples to hold your attention, to introduce a topic. And they can weave all of these things, and, and they're very good at emotional manipulation, getting you to, to, to buy into something. And this happens all the time. Do you remember the book The Shack? That was emotional manipulation to try to slide in a very inconvenient untruth. Universalism. Everybody ends up in heaven. Some just have to wait a while before they get there. What's the problem if you buy into that? You're leading people. Hi there. Here, let me bring you alongside here so that I can lead you to the gate of hell. The health and prosperity gospel. When you start twisting the message to try to make it popular, or try to make it acceptable, you're changing the message. And now you've made it into something that it's not. And if I choose to believe that, where am I? I'm in that group that someday is going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all of these things in your name? Many will say to me in that day, there's plenty of folks who are utterly convinced that they're on the straight and narrow and they're on the wide and broad. The way you avoid that is knowing what the truth is. I'm so grateful for this church and the ministry that this church has had over the years because at the end of the day, at the beginning of the day, during the day, and at the end of the day, it is about this book. What does it say? What does it mean? And how do we put it into practice? Not everybody has that. For even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless, I'm with you in spirit. And now he's going to catch him doing something right. You ever run into that as a parent? It always seems that all I'm doing is catching my kids doing something wrong. Paul's going to catch these people doing something right. Because what's his attitude toward them? Is Paul fearful? No. What is he? I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. So, I'm warning, I'm admonishing, 
for the purpose that you're aware that this awaits you. This is lurking for you. But as he looks at them, he's rejoicing. Because again, this idea of good discipline, everything is in its place. There's a place for everything and everything in its place. They're living very orderly lives. They're leading organized lives. So they're not lazy. They're not haphazard. And that is evidenced in the stability of their faith. They're grounded. They're not getting blown around. So again, be warned, there's people that are out for you. But yet I look at you and I see that you're being faithful. Now, Paul does in this book what he does in many of his books. Up until this point, so now we're in chapter 2 out of a four-chapter book. Chapter 2, we're coming into verse 6, and we're going to encounter the first command. All of this up to this point has been background. This is how things are. This is the training portion. So he's admonished, and he's trained, and now he's going to say, and this is how you carry this out. Here's a wide umbrella as to how you apply this. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. Now this idea, okay, well, are they receiving Jesus into their heart? No. The idea here of receiving, it's, it's, it, this is one of the instances where it's used metaphorically. It means to receive into the mind, to be taught, to learn. So as you have learned Christ, which again, what's he, what he's been doing here for, since the beginning of the book, as you have received this and you have understood it, now what do you do with it? Walk in him. The idea of walking again is your manner of life. It's your pattern of living. That's the overall command. Walk in him. That's the command. And there's four participles. There's four ways that you accomplish this command. So this is fleshing out the command. What does this look like? And what's interesting in these participles, three of them are passive. One is active. What does it mean when it's active? What does the active voice mean? You're doing it. You're active. You're performing this. What does it mean to, if it's passive? It's being done to you by somebody else. So, last week when we were having the question, we were having the dialogue about whether or not you can lose your salvation, here's your answer right here, okay? So, walk in him, having been firmly rooted. So the idea here is the tree is established. The roots are in, they're in tight, they're in deep, and this tree doesn't get blown around. It is solid. That is in the passive voice. That is something that is done to us and for us. The idea of being firmly rooted. The idea of being firmly rooted is a response to truth. What, 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 what does that bring to your mind? How about the sower and the soils? 
Which one was firmly rooted? Ultimately. The one that's producing fruit. So, firmly rooted. You're the house that's built on the rock. The storm's going to come. Storms come. House stands because it's on the rock. Firmly rooted. Being built up in him. This is talking about the walls. So, we're not using um, thatch here. We're using masonry blocks. These are th the, the building here that's being built is strong. It's secure. It's not doing this when the wind blows. It's solid. And again, passive voice. This is done to us. This is done for us. Established in your faith. Again, that idea, it's sure, it's fixed, it's not transient, it's not, uh, again, it's not here today, gone tomorrow. One of the, the uh, in the lexicon, one of the uh, definitions, the idea of great firmness of character. Now, go back to verse 23 where we were having the discussion last week. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established. Well, who has established us in the faith? Christ has. And steadfast. Well, who makes me steadfast? Christ. So the idea here is, back in verse 23, He's not worried about them losing their salvation. He's not saying that they can. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. When you encounter difficulty, you persevere. When you encounter error, you hold to the truth. That's the evidence. I need to be mindful that the error exists so that I can be watchful for it. When different things are presented up by the culture, look, here's the newest fad in what represents truth. Great. How do I understand that? But how do I understand that in reference to what? What's really true? And when this, when the new fad does not comport with what God says is true, then I recognize that that's error. Nothing to do with that. Make sense? So again, this idea here, and by the way, established in faith, is also passive. That's done for us. So I am called by God. I am saved by God. And I am kept by God. What does that allow me to have? Go back up a little bit. That allows me to have the full assurance, the certitude. God is responsible for my salvation. God's responsible for my sanctification. Now, do I have a part in sanctification? Well, I do. I need to obey. 
but who's making me more like Christ? I hope it's not me. Otherwise, I'm, I'm hosed. I'm in trouble. And so again, these are being done by him. But there is one that's active. It's the last one. Overflowing with gratitude. So what is gratitude? Gratitude, I'm not talking about a definition of gratitude. I'm asking about the implementation of it. What is it? Gratitude is a choice. I choose to be grateful. Now, I ought to be. Who in this room does not have cause to be overflowing with gratitude? That ought to mark us every single day. And it's... Gratitude promotes humility. Look, when I'm grateful for my salvation, when I'm expressing to God thankfulness that he called me, that he rescued me, that, he, that, that Jesus paid, he atoned for my sin, that he endured the wrath of God on my behalf that I'll never, that I'll never see, when I express my gratitude to God to that, what is, what is happening with my relationship with him? How am I relating to him? Am I standing independent with a raised fist? No, exactly the opposite, right? I am coming to him with a head bowed and a grateful heart because these are things that he is doing for me. It promotes humility. Promotes all kinds of other stuff as well. I remember Alan teaching in 2 Corinthians many years ago now and talking about cultivating the attitude of gratitude. Now, I'll bet you didn't make that up, that saying, because I think I'd heard it when I was a kid. But it's that idea of it's something that it's, it's like a garden and you tend to it and you, you put care into it. Why? Because it is accomplishing Results. It is producing fruit. And when you look at someone, was Paul a grateful person? Yeah, he was. And how did it impact him? He's in prison, and yet he can rejoice. Because God's at work. It was Paul who wrote, For thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, Paul wrote that in the New Testament. That's an Old Testament quote. What's it mean? God's sovereign. And he can use me however he wants. And if that means he's going to use me by having me in a prison cell, then that's how he's going to use me, and I need to buy into that and be grateful that he's using me at all and be about his business. See, it takes, it takes something where you could look at it from one perspective, same circumstances. You can look at it from one perspective and end up in despair. And you can look at the very same circumstances with the other, with the opposite perspective and be overflowing with gratitude and joy. And it's all because of your choice as to which way you perceive it.
same circumstances. Let's pray. Father, only you can, can accomplish that. And we're so grateful that you're sovereign over all things, that you cause all things to work after the counsel of your own will, that you are in fact sovereign over all and everything. How, when, to what degree, who, all of those things, the why. You understand all of those things. And you, and you knit all of those things together. Oh, Lord, help us to, to, to pause when we are tempted to despair. That we would pause when we are tempted to not believe and consider what the truth is, what is reality. Help us not to fly by feelings. Help us to be so grounded in your word and so grounded in truth that we would respond even initially in ways that would please you, that would demonstrate our, our, an unshakable trust in who you are and how you work. Thank you that you've given us so much you're not asking us to take a, a, you know, a flying leap in the dark. We have so much in your word. We have no shortage of exposure to truth. Father, help us to take that and, again, be steeped in understanding and in wisdom so that we can take what you say, do it, and put it into practice that we would demonstrate that we're yours. In Christ's name, amen.